everybody, and welcome to this month's episode of Kevin and Jerome Present, or Jerome and Kevin Present, whatever floats your boat. I am Kevin. Jerome is with me as always. And this month we are talking season three of Brockmire, the penultimate season of IFC series Brockmire. Jerome, how are we doing this fine November wink morning? Yeah, November wink wink. Um, so I'm doing well. And of course, uh, my mood on this podcast will greatly have depended on how well the White Sox did. Um, if they lost in the first round, then you should assume that I'm in a very bad mood. If they lost in the league championship series, a little less of a bad mood. If they lost in the World Series, uh, happy, but, you know, of course, a little sad. And if they won the World Series, Kevin, then I'm euphoric. I was actually meant to ask you last month if you had a prediction for the World Series since it was October and we were going to be around that time. I guess it's useless to ask now, but someone like me who knows nothing about baseball, is there, are there odds on favorite for this 2021 World Series? I mean, it was always going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, the Chicago White Sox, the Milwaukee Brewers. Those were definitely the contenders for uh, the 2021 season. So um, a lot of the same teams from last year. And of course, you got your big market teams that are always uh, going to play a factor. But uh, that is that is not what Brotmeyer season three. Brotmeyer season three uh, takes us all the way back to the beginning of a season when when hope springs eternal. Yes, and we actually are in – you mentioned Tampa Bay. We are in Florida. We're in Sunrise, Florida for this season as Jim has transferred to uh, – or he has gotten a job with the Oakland team. Um, is This isn't the athletics, right? Do they do they have a name? I just remember being called Oakland the whole season. They never call the teams by their actual name, which is really clunky because, again, when it comes Trademarks to branding – when yeah. it comes to branding and whatnot, like you always call the team more so by their name than the actual city. So they don't call them the Oakland Athletics, but the colors are basically the same. <laughs> so they're the Oakland Athletics without being the Oakland Athletics. And it's the same. The other team that they prominently play is Tampa. And Tampa is also um, – it's very similar color scheme as the Tampa Bay Rays. I have a, a friend of mine. He works in sports marketing and he worked and one of his jobs was looking at merchandising and stuff that was um, like MLB licensed merchandise for the usage of logos and things of that nature. So I wonder if they had someone like that when they created these faux logos that are close enough to sort of resemble the the major league components to be like if they will pass the smell test or not legally on the show. Because, yes, you can definitely tell like, OK, this is intended to look like the Oakland Athletics logo, but it's just different enough where they could probably get away with it legally. I mean, it's like the episode of The Simpsons, The Shinning. What, do you want to get sued? <laughs> there it is. Uh, go listen to our Simpsons episode to, for more talk about The Shinning. Uh, but here we are in Florida. Jim is here for spring training, and we start with him uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's telling a story. Uh, about this loud woman who lives in this compound, and as he's leaving, he's criticized by a woman for not sticking around to hear other people's shared stories, but also for lying about the end. And he tells her the truth about the end of the story, which uh, ends with him soundproofing his apartment to stop hearing the woman screaming out for pain. And because he told the truth, this woman agrees to be Jim's sponsor because he's away from his hometown, so he needs a new sponsor while he's in Florida. Uh, and a great line that they say in here somewhere is the truth always sounds awful when you hear it out loud. And uh, boy, is that the truth. 
I'm going to talk now about about the person they cast in this role, Martha Plimpton, who is a character actor. She's been around tons of movies and TV series. She has a very unique connection to baseball. She is the cousin of writer George Plimpton. George Plimpton did a very famous story for Sports Illustrated, April Fool's Day, 1985, talking about a Mets a Mets prospect named Sid Finch who threw 168 miles per hour, which is basically impossible. But it was a very famous Sports Illustrated story, and it was April Fool's Day. I have to imagine that connection is one of the reasons that she was cast in this show. A story that I did not know, but it's it's a great thing like in this in a show like this where if you know, you know, and it's a nice wink. But if you don't know, it has no effect on your enjoyment of the show whatsoever. No, and I think when you're doing those kinds of inside baseball, pun intended moments, I think that that's what they work out, that when they work out for the best. I have I have very mixed feelings about some of the character additions, um, Martha Plimpton, her character included. It just, it, it feels like there are certain characters that are really well calibrated for this show and they work out really well. Uh, when we talk about Gabby, we'll get to, we'll talk about some of that in a positive way. But this character specifically, I don't think she ever really clicked for me beyond just being kind of a bounce, just kind of being a foil for Brock Meyer. I, I, they, they kind of gave her this one character moment at the beginning of episode eight, but they, I, I, it just, it, it felt like her character was undercooked. Yeah, I would say she's there's there's she's she's basically a MacGuffin for a lot of times, but she is not prominently featured in any way that is substantial until maybe the final episode. For sure. Uh, There is one other casting choice that very much gets my approval. Well, uh, I don't I mean, I know we're talking about Tani Newsom as Gabby, who's the black female announcer who's going to be broadcasting with Jim. She's like an ex uh, uh, softball player. So Jim's going to share a booth here. And then some no name actor named JK Simmons is this Oakland radio announcer that Jim is replacing. Uh, Can't say I've heard of him. Have you covered any movies of his here on this website? Uh, I believe Matt and Ben did when they talked about Whiplash. Uh, we we talked about J.K. Simmons, uh, the fourth season of Mars Investigated. Kevin, do you not remember that? Uh, I can't say I do. They, yeah, nope, nope, not ringing a bell. Uh, J.K. Simmons is great. He definitely brings a little bit of J. Jonah Jameson energy to this part, and that is very much appreciated, especially in the early episodes. So it's one of those things like, how do you get an actor to do a show like this that very clearly doesn't have a huge budget and whatnot? And, you know, you could just imagine he and his agent having a conversation, and it's just like, uh, J.K., they, they, Hank Azaria wants you to come and do Brockmire. It's like, ah, I don't really want to. Uh, your character has the biggest cock on the show. And... <laughs> And at that point, I'd be like, yep, sign me up. Go for it. So I actually, when I said the thing about have you covered any of his movies, I thought you were going to be like, oh, yeah, we did. Obviously, for your uh, comic book stuff, you would have covered the Sam Raimi movies. But no, I forgot we have big ideas from uh, Matt and Mike, and they already talked about the Raimi trilogy. So there's that. But he wasn't obviously far from home, too, at the very end. So I think you guys probably talked about that once upon a time. We did spoilers. He wasn't fought once. He was he was there, and yeah, whatever. If you didn't see him, fuck off. (laughs) Come on, man, to be nice. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So, anyways, uh, you're right. Matt himself is this alpha male asshole towards Gabby and just about everybody else. He's a big jerk, 
And uh, Jim and Gabby kind of commiserate with him being a jerk. But uh, again, he talks way too much about Matt having the biggest stick in baseball because Jim literally can't help himself sometimes. Uh, and- no, no, he can't. And the one thing I will say is I really – Tawny Newsom is a great casting choice as well. She comes across as very credible as potentially being someone who could have played softball, who is who is very credible as potentially being a, a voice in baseball. And I guess this is a good opportunity to just spend a minute or so uh, talking about how there have been increased roles for women in broadcasting of primarily male sports. I think most prominently Doris Burke in the NBA is definitely someone that a lot of people really enjoy. In Major League Baseball, Jessica Mendoza does a lot of games for ESPN. So you are seeing a lot more women in roles beyond just being like sideline reporter or person in the studio. So this is definitely something that is is at least somewhat realistic. Yeah, and it's and it's great to to have her there. And what I like is that it's it's not like this big explicit thing all the time, but it is discussed about how there's a lot of disadvantages with her being black and a female and all this that really come to a head in the final episode. But just for things that are out of her control and just for who he is, there's a lot of people who don't want her to even be there. And she has a lot of challenges to try to be taken seriously, to try to like constantly earn her keep. And now you've got uh, fortunately for her, a sober Jim Brockmeyer there, but obviously seen by many as still a powder keg or an unknown quotient. So that is obviously something I think she's very weary of to begin with. So they, they bring up this idea that he has killed all of these careers, which is true, but they don't mention the fact uh, of Jules and Charles having a lot of success after their associations with Brockmire. So that was a little bit unusual to me. Um, we don't get a lot of Charles or Jules in this season. So basically you're almost dealing with like an entirely different cast, which is, it keeps the show very fresh, but of course there are adjustments that you have to make just mentally getting used to these new characters. But yeah, I mean, yes, he's killed a lot of careers and that is, that's a good punchline, but, but Charles is a millionaire by the end of this season. And part of that is because of the Brockmire podcast. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's a good point. There's a lot of things like that, too, that they I, that I kind of love. They don't explicitly state, but I, they're very strictly talking about baseball careers at this point, uh, which is true. And I love that he makes a literal note to himself to stop doing that. Um, but I as surprised as I was to see J.K. Simmons in this, I have to say, for whatever reason, I was more surprised to see Richard Kind pop up in this as Gus Barton, their producer who used to work for the Montreal Expos and now works for here. He doesn't have that much to do in this season either, but I like Richard Kind, so it was fun to see him there as like this, uh, you know, somewhat crotchety antagonist to to Gabby and Jim during the season. He was he was fun in his role, but definitely did not get a lot of screen time. Now I wonder who who decided that he would wear overalls. Was that like him being like, "Look, if you're going to pay me this little money, can I just wear overalls the entire time?" Or is that like a specific note? Those these are the things that I wonder about as I'm watching a TV show, Kevin, and that probably makes me a weirdo. Well, the character says he wears them because he doesn't want to wear underwear to be more free, and I want to know if he took that uh, that made the character choice to also literally do the same. If Richard Kind was uh, in the buff underneath the overalls minus his shirt, 
So it is also fascinating to me that the Montreal Expos are the only actual full team that gets mentioned, I think, maybe in the history of the series that was a real team. Like, Oakland is never referred to as the A's. Tampa is never referred to as the Rays. Yes, you had the New Orleans Crawdaddies, not a real team. Yeah, you had the Morristown Frackers, not a real team. Montreal Expos were a real team, and I I wonder how they were able to slip that by. I wonder if it's because they were a real team and are and are no longer a team uh, as the series is going on, if that has something to do with it. I mean, it, you may very well be right. That's the only thing I can think of that makes sense. But anyways, uh, but there's this broadcaster's dinner that Matt holds and Jim and Gabby go and Matt will not let Jim join the dinner and insults him in front of everybody until Jim uh, leaves tearfully. And we know from the end of season two that he is more prone to cry now because of his sobriety, but obviously a very humiliating foot uh, for him to get off of in the Oakland scene. And yeah, definitely diminishes him in front of a lot of people, just more Matt being a jerk. So I think the difference between these broadcasters and when he was at another broadcaster's dinner, the impression that I get is the broadcasters that are gathering together in Florida are former baseball players and Rich Eyes and Bob Costas, those people, they're, they're not former players. Right. So there are different wings and different kinds of broadcasters. So I think that's one of the reasons that he is not accepted in this particular group. It has nothing to do with anything except the fact that he is not a baseball player. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good uh, point to make. But Jim does make a friend. It may be a tortoise that he found in his bathroom that he names Clemenza, but a friend nonetheless. And, I, and Clemenza is a great uh, – character question mark throughout this whole uh season how dare you put a question mark after that <laughs> you're goddamn right Coleman. he's the most important character in this show and the funny thing is i so i looked up because i know what clemenza from the godfather looks like but i i googled it just he really does kind of look like clemenza <laughs> from the godfather like that's the thing is that this tortoise who was 100 years old really does look like Clemenza. I was trying to find more information about the turtle to see if it re- if the turtle really was over 100 and if it's still alive and I couldn't find anything. I also really appreciate cuz and it comes up again that Godfather is his favorite movie. Like just the fact that they didn't go with like an obvious choice like um Major League or uh Field of Dreams or something like that. Some some baseball thing that would be it. No, like Godfather a legit good movie that somebody his age would love. Makes all the sense in the world to me. I love the fact that Brock Meyer is a huge fan of pop, pop culture. I also love the fact that, that Christopher Nolan later on in the season comes up and just his reaction to Christopher Nolan movies. Oh my God, so funny. I really see the problem with the show not airing now is I really want his reaction to Tenet. <laughs> yeah, right? Just because I, I would like to think that that's the movie that drove him back to the bottle. If there ever was one, that would be it for sure. Yes, but but yes. but he seems in a good enough headspace to know that he just has to leave. If he, yes. If that's the yes. Case. So I I did think it was interesting. You saw sort of a, a clear delineation of how even Jim views people because Gabby has this uh, this pin that she wants to give Jim as a gift and also has one for Gus. But Jim doesn't respect Gus and doesn't want to give her, and he has this clear delineation between producer and broadcasters, which I think is a very interesting thing going on in his in his mind at the time. I also think he he probably misses Charles as well and really liked what Charles was able to do for him. So I think the subtext behind that, – that may have been some of the subtext as well. 
Yeah. We see at the very first broadcast, Jim goes off on some rant about how the stadium was a scam the taxpayers paid for through legislation, which pisses off Gabby. And Gus knew he pulled something like this. So he actually lied to Jim about being on the air. Uh, and it resulted in some dead air at the beginning. But they it was it was interesting. They had to do a test with with Jim because they they know him better than Jim thinks he knows him. And uh, he couldn't again, can't help himself sometimes. So let's talk about spring training. I'm going to try to keep this short. So basically, before the season starts in Major League Baseball, you, you basically go to one of two states. You, about half the teams go to Florida. About half the teams go to Arizona. Arizona, everything is really close together. And it's funny that this is the Oakland baseball team. I was actually at the Oakland A spring training facility in 2010 when I went to WrestleMania 26. I also went to a bunch of spring training baseball games. The Oakland A's happened to be one of the teams that I was at. So the Oakland A's are actually in Arizona. But for the purposes of this show, they moved them to Florida and The scheme that is revealed is so hilarious that I'm not even mad that they made it unrealistic because it's just – it's the perfect combination of scuzziness, of hashtag Florida, hashtag – I mean it's just – it's great stuff. I really, really loved just how they made this plausible and it it tremendously amused me. Yeah, it's great and and it's very – it seems very fitting to the whole actual – concept of spring training uh so jim comes home steps in clem's poop and lets him out into the wild sad face uh but then jim calls his sponsor shirley uh when the voices of his colleagues criticisms really get to him he's really unhappy that nobody seems to care that he got sober and she tells him that uh they doubt him until he makes different choices it says the the key to having a relationship is how to learn to be with someone without expecting anything into in return so when he goes back the next day, he apologizes to Gabby and tells her he wants to be better. He even went online and purchased the pins that she was going to gift him, one for her, one for Gus. And then he ends up uh, going back and finding Clem, deciding that this is going to be the relationship he tries to uh, keep to make himself better. And the episode ends with him sharing Clem with the 86-year-old woman who was screaming in the night that he talked about in his share story. So cute way to end the episode here. But Jim legitimately trying to get better. So I think the the theme of season one was just Brock Meyer indulging in some in some of his worst tendencies, being an asshole, being a drunk. Season two was about him learning to not be a drunk. Season three is about him learning to not be an asshole. That's basically what they're going for here. And the fact that Brock Meyer, even though he's sober, even though he's doing much better in a lot of ways, he still has a lot of room to grow. And that's something that I appreciate so much about season three and why I think it's a much stronger season uh, than number two, because it's, you know, it's really funny to have Brock Meyer just go on these drunken rats and drink a beer and all that jazz. And it's really funny, but like to actually now break this down and talk about Brock Meyer, like going into almost a completely new space, no Charles, no jewels, not really a lot of familiarity and basically building up these relationships from scratch. I think that's that's something that makes for a really intriguing season of television, not just because of the humor involved, but because it's there's also an emotional part to this that I think the show does really well as we get into some of the later episodes. Yes, and well, he's not rid of Jules just yet because the next episode she's in Tampa Bay 
in their baseball office. And I guess she's, I don't, I don't remember if they explicitly say what's going on with the frackers team, if she sold it or what's happening or whatever, but she's looking to get into marketing some of the major league games. And so she's given the opportunity to market one of Tampa Bay's most poorly drawing times. It's a Wednesday, 10 a.m. game. There's a rodeo in town. So there's going to be cattle and poop and awful smells everywhere in order to bolster attendance for that day. And of course, the game is against Oakland. So Jim is going to be there. Did I miss something or did they kind of explicitly state what's going on with Jules and the the Frackers team? They did not. And so that that was a little weird that they didn't mention what was going on with the Frackers team because that's something that she was very passionate about. But basically, uh, they are they are portraying her as uh, a modern day Bill Vec. Bill Vec was somebody who uh, was a baseball owner who would basically do these crazy wacky things, like he would put baseball players in shorts. He had a legalized dwarf taken at bat in a game and things like that. So I think that's kind of what they're going for uh, with the Jules character, like to market it, to market baseball. I also want to mention the fact – so when I was watching season four, I was like, did season three really set this up? And I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what happens in season four because I'm not a spoiling asshole. But I will tell you that there are a lot of aspects to season three that do a really good job of teasing what's to come in season four. And the fact that they are talking about the marketing of baseball and some of the struggles with the sport, that is important to keep in mind. Okay. That's good to know. It's also in this episode we, we have Gabby revealing that she is gay to Jim, and Jim says he fancies himself as a friend to lesbians. He gets along with them great, even citing his own sister. Funny, but definitely a little bit uh, cringy. That's what they're going for. I love the fact that Jim is kind of progressive in so many ways, but he's still – the type of person who will brag about having a black best friend or gay friends or things like that. Mm. It almost reminds me of like the Patton Oswalt joke of like, where he's like, I'm an ally, but you got to give me some time to catch up on the right terminology and stuff. Like it, it, you know, a lot of intentions sometimes go better than what's actually being said. And I think that's a, a very Jim Brockmeyer thing. Absolutely. And so we get Jim and Jules meeting up for a, a, an awkward lunch Fortunately, Jim is able to be around people who are drinking. That is not a trigger. It's dive bars. And as you said, Christopher Nolan movies that are his triggers, which I get. Um, This is where Jules breaks the news to him that she is dating George Brett, a former baseball player. And it's actually one of Jim's only friends and that they are moving in together in Morristown. And it's also awkward because she wants Jim to put in a good word to for George to Bob Costas. as He is up for like a talking head role in ESPN. And Jim reluctantly agrees to do so. So a bit of an awkward meeting where Jules has to break the news that she has not only met someone, it's a friend of Jim's that she is dating. And oh, by the way, can you uh, maybe put in a word to help him get a job? This is one of those things that I think as somebody who knows baseball, this is something that didn't totally work for me. I'm sure that most of the people who watch this are not huge baseball nerds. So this is this is all just noise and drama and whatnot. But, I mean, look, George Brett's a Hall of Fame baseball player. If they were going to hire him, they'd just hire him because he's a legendary Major League Baseball player. I mean, I don't think he would necessarily need Brockmeyer to, to put in a good word for him. But I will say, despite my feelings on that, it, it actually has a really good payoff. So I'm not – I can't say that – I'm I, I, I could say that in the moment I was a little bit annoyed, but I will say that the payoff to this is tremendous. 
Well, and the truth is, it didn't have to be George Brett. It could literally be any baseball Correct. player of the same level of prestige, and they just have to be like, okay, which one are we going to get? And they got George Brett, and so the role went to George Brett. Yeah, and it makes sense because George Brett played for Kansas City, and Brock Meyer was a broadcaster in Kansas City. Right, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. And so Jules actually does do her job well selling out the game of the stadium against all odds, but she did so by partnering up with this mobile game called Beats of Bedlam, which was designed to draw fans to the stadium to catch this like stadium exclusive character. It's very Pokemon Go esque. If for anyone who's ever played that game, Miami doesn't really appreciate the gimmick, wants repeat customers, but she talks about how being at the ballpark for this will help create this moment and draw them back through nostalgia. And she ends up getting a gig promoting the rest of the regular dates. I don't know that that argument necessarily worked for me. I'm more on the side of Miami and it seemed like they were very quick to change their minds, but whatever, I guess it keeps, it keeps, it gives her a reason to, to remain in Florida for the time being. I think it's one of those things that I think that there is, there is something to nostalgia. I mean, of course the legendary Don Draper quote from Mad Men. I always think of that when they mention nostalgia, but I think that part of what makes baseball special is nostalgia and actually getting to go to see a game live. I think that makes a huge difference. Baseball on TV kind of sucks, quite frankly. I think pro football, hockey, not even hockey, basketball, football are specifically designed for TV in so many ways because of the commercial breaks because of a lot of things, especially football. I mean, football, honestly, going to a football game kind of sucks. I much prefer watching football on TV, but baseball is so much, it's so much about the atmosphere, being at the game, drinking with your friends. Like, there's definitely something to that. I agree with you that it's not, it's not totally plausible, but I think the idea of creating a moment when you go to a live event, I think that's something that as wrestling fans, we can, we can certainly connect with because We've certainly been at wrestling shows where there have been amazing moments, and it's definitely drawn us back to it. So I do think that there is there is something to it. I will say, though, the funniest thing is I don't think people – like Pokemon Go, it, it was a big deal a few years ago. I don't think people realized just how big of a deal that it was. Oh, it was enormous. It, it, and, and there's still a lot of people who play it to this day, but it was huge and like – 2016, 2017, and saw as a fan base. I can't believe, like, people would, like, go to the parks and whatnot and try to catch Pokemon. It's wild to me just how popular this got. And 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 don't get me wrong. My problem isn't the the connection through nostalgia. I firmly believe and know all that stuff, that nostalgia is as powerful as Jules is putting it out there. I just don't necessarily buy that we got all these people to come here because of this mobile game. And now they're going to have one day of nostalgia, this ballpark, and it's going to make them lifelong fans. And the fact that Miami went to mad to happy so fast was just like, I get it. You got a half hour. You got eight episodes. You got to make some cuts here. But yeah, the, the explanation to me from from Jules about that didn't necessarily tie into the promotion that got the people there. That's all. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so Jim gets even more angry at Jules after the game when he realizes that Brett uh, George Brett is now sober because he was telling himself this whole time that she was too damaged as a functional alcoholic to date a sober person, and that's the reason why they weren't together. So some delusion from Jim on that part. And she makes it clear to him that they're never getting back together. And this is a fight in the parking lot where there's a pig that is uh, blocking her parking spot and changes hats at one point. So you get this very humorous thing going on as they're fighting. But 
that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is that uh, Jules puts a line in the sand that we're never getting back together. Never, ever. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of sad because you think about these two and everything that they've they've kind of gone through. And now there's there's another obstacle. And the fact that he's dating this very famous baseball player and what that what that all means. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really fascinating. And um, I, I really want to get to the next scene, though, because this might be one of my favorites of the entire series. So, and yes, in order for Jim to make it up to Jules for his outburst, he got, he goes and has a dinner with Bob Costas. Costas holds this grudge over Jim for giving him pink eye many years ago, but Bob Costas ultimately agrees to help George Brett get the gig. So every day he can think about all the ways that George Brett is satisfying Jim's ex-girlfriend. Quite a gut punch to Jim, but I will let you talk about this scene. Bob Costas, if if you've ever watched him do the Olympics or football or baseball, he is this very serene. He's basically the anti-Brockmeyer in so many ways with how he conducts himself. He's very he's a very authoritative voice, I think, in the world of sports. But he's done a couple of cameos in in this show and in basketball. Kevin, you've seen basketball, haven't you? Have I seen basketball? Look who you're talking to. Uh, so Bob Costas, I mean. <laughs> He's got he's got one of the funnier lines in that in that movie when he talks about you're excited feel these nipples. I mean, the idea of Bob Costas saying that is hilarious and I could do a TED talk about how underrated basketball is as a comedy, but I'm not going to do that right now because this uh this scene, I think Bob Costas is not an actor, but the way that he talks to Brock Meyer in this scene, it just it is pitch perfect and talking about like the 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 gut punch of saying that George Brett is going to satisfy Jim's ex-girlfriend. Just it, just really good stuff. And the fact that they got such a good performance out of him uh, is, is impressive to me because he's not an actor. And this feels like the complete opposite of who Bob Costas is as a person. But him getting pink eye really was a big deal. Like That was definitely something that was memed and tweeted about endlessly. In 2014, if it happened in like 2020, it would probably have been an even bigger deal. So I did not know the pink eye thing was a real thing. So that's great. Uh, but yeah, Bob Costas to me is like the guy in sports for a lot of broadcasting, especially baseball. But he's like a very s- serious person. But I do like that he can poke fun at himself. And like obviously what I know him most for is that Vince McMahon interview gone awry. So the fact that he is uh, – doesn't always throw pun intended softball questions and stuff too is also – very admirable of him. So yeah, it, it's fun to see they got like this very re- highly respected uh, individual in this show, but obviously someone who's not afraid to have some fun. For sure. And then you get a scene where George Brett himself appears in the flesh to meet Jim in the cafeteria of the Oakland Stadium uh, to thank him for that. And you know he's like, "Oh, are we cool?" And Jim begrudgingly says they're cool, and then flips him off behind his back. And then the episode ends with Jim getting the yips on the air which brings us into episode three called the yips. And there's been this running gag about Jim screwing up uh, his part in the Ken Burns baseball documentary. And the episode begins with a fake clip from that documentary that explains the origin of the yips, which includes Jim awkwardly talking about STD. So Jerome, you want to talk about the yips. I will want you to do that. And also the importance of, or the, uh, the, the, the acclaim of the Ken Burns baseball documentary. We are going to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the first two minutes of episode three, even though, I mean, the yips are an important part, but we're going to just spend an inordinate amount of time. So let's talk about the yips first. 
Uh, I, I think the, the fake documentary for it serves a good purpose in that it does explain what the yips are. Essentially the yips, it's a mental thing where you cannot mentally do something that you've always been capable of doing. Like, Throwing from second base to first base is one of the most basic things a professional baseball player can do. And they are real. Like, if you look up Cup, Cup Knobloch is a perfect example. He played with the New York Yankees, and he just could not make that throw. Uh, Rick Ankiel was a pitcher for the Cardinals. If you YouTube him and just find out, like, what he did... It's 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 pretty remarkable. Like Rick Ankiel literally could not throw a strike. He was walking people. He was throwing wild pitches. It's crazy just how real this yips thing is. So in this case, they come up with kind of a broadcaster's equivalent that Jim Brockmeyer cannot do the simplest task that you're, you're supposed to be able to do, especially as a radio broadcaster where there are no visuals. You have to announce the count how many balls, how many strikes, and he's just not able to do that. So that's very problematic. Ken Burns' baseball documentary is probably one of the most important sports documentaries that's ever been made. And Ken Burns, probably one of our most important documentarians. And I think that goes back to the Civil War, I think, is the documentary that people most closely associate with him as far as like when he became a big deal. But he's done documentaries about baseball, country music, jazz, the Dust Bowl, the Roosevelts. Uh, he just did one uh, about Muhammad Ali that came out in September. So he is somebody who is a huge part of the the, the culture. And his documentaries, they draw significant ratings for PBS. Millions of people watch these documentaries. And Ken Burns' baseball documentary came out in September of 1994. And it's significant that it came out at that time because baseball was on strike. The World Series was either about to get canceled or was already canceled. So this documentary comes out literally at a time when baseball is at its worst and when people are probably feeling that pull of nostalgia. So it's a really important documentary. Uh, Ken Burns' style has been parodied in Community before. Um, I think what there there was more based off the Civil War. This is very clearly specifically focused on Ken Burns' baseball uh, documentary, but. Uh, it's really great that uh, they got Bob Costas again uh, for this. Bob Costas was in the actual baseball documentary. And that, uh, of course, you had Art Newley, who uh, was younger, also talking. And, of course, uh, Brock Meyer talking about STDs, which was hilarious. Always. he Again, he can't help himself but get into these, these hilarious stories. But uh, so, yes, thank you for all of that. The yips persist here at that beginning of the episode where – and you even get a bit of dark humor. Gabby talks about one of her softball teammates killing themselves when they got the yips. So uh, that's fun. Matt is giving Jim a hard time about this, wants to embarrass him on an upcoming broadcast. And this is when we get into some of the weird stuff uh, with AA here because Jim's talking to Shirley Reveals that he skipped all the God-related steps of AA, and she tells him that he needs to find a higher power that works for him in order to take control of everything, including the yips. So I think the problem is that AA, I think the, AA can work for some people. I think it's totally a legitimate form of rehabilitation for a lot of folks, especially for those who are more religiously inclined. 
Um, but for a show that has been so progressive and for a show that I think has handled a lot of very potentially dicey issues with a lot of maturity and handled them extremely well, I think back to uh, you know how they have treated the Lucy character and how they have addressed abortion on this show. You know, it's funny, but I think that they've handled in a, they handled the abortion episode in a way that was funny, but I don't think it was insulting. Um, in my view, again, other people may feel differently, and of course, you are entitled uh, to that opinion. And I understand, like that, that is a sensitive issue. So, and this is a sensitive issue as well. But I think the problem becomes when you talk about this idea of God, because, uh, look, I'm an atheist and like Brockmeyer, I am an atheist. So if, if I would ever be in a position where I needed rehabilitation, like the issue would never be asking for help, but the idea of, of basically saying that I am powerless and that I need a higher power, I think that's I think that's very problematic, and I think this is a legitimate issue uh, for a lot of people, and it's not something that is addressed all that well because I think for a lot of in a lot of situations, AA is basically considered to be the only acceptable form of rehabilitation for a lot of court cases, and I think that it is an issue. And again, I think that this is a show that has done a really good job of kind of handling it, and I think the payoff is amusing, and even like some of the scenes in this episode where Jim goes to Gabby's church. Like, I think those scenes are funny, but I think from a, for me as, as somebody again, who is not religious, I just, I I have a problem with the idea that in order to be fully rehabilitated, that I would need to accept a higher power. I, so I agree with all of that. I myself am not a religious person whatsoever, haven't been my entire life. So the fact that AA and sobriety, you have to find God or whatever else is to me very problematic may not be the right word, but it definitely to me is, is questionable. Whenever you have to have that as part of a recovery program, it makes me wonder if there's some sort of ulterior motive or something like that. Anyways, I do think the way that they handle it and what Jim ultimately finds as his higher power works really well. So I do appreciate just in, in terms of the television show, the spin on it they put. They don't have Jim find God itself or what have you, but finds comfort in something that's already in his life. And yeah, like, so the next scene where he goes to church with Gabby and uh, we don't see it, but he apparently calls Jesus the mayor of Auschwitz is uh, is very darkly funny. And then when Gabby explains to Jim that for her, God is someone who makes her feel comfort and certainty in a time when she needed it. And that makes sense to Jim. I believe that that does make sense to Jim, that he, again, he's a very accepting person. So even if he is an atheist, if someone gets something out of God, in his eyes, that is of value to him and he respects that as someone else. And, he's, and it's less about finding God than it is finding something else that can that where he can find his comfort and certainty in a time when he needs it. So for me, it ends up working, but there is some, but it, there is something with me that it, it, it still feels wrong in some ways, just of my personal opinions of having to have God in your sobriety program. For for sure. And I think this is just – this is a weird episode in a lot of ways because towards the end of the episode so, – so we get into the next scene with Matt and Jim and I don't know. It's just – it's a very – it's a very strangely paced and the the plot mechanics don't quite add up to me. Yeah, because you have Matt Matt's illness from 
either the oh, it's the cancer himself because he's mentioned he's been off chemo for a little bit. Ends up with him going to the hospital, and now Jim has a solo booth to call. He does it with no yips, and then this is going to lead to Gabby being fired. And so at the end of the episode, it's like he has the yips again, or does he? And and, to, and my read on that is that he's purposely fumbling so Gabby does not get fired. And that comes after a scene where Shirley tells him that. And I like this, too, because Jim, of course, like he wants some credit for um, or, or he wants some credit for getting better. But he also is like, when do I get to stop helping others and help myself? And Shirley gives a line that I think is a real hook for the rest of the season, where when it stops feeling like a chore to help other people is when you can help yourself. And I think that's a big theme for the rest of the episode that it's not hammered over the head, but kind of becomes the episode. But yeah, it's a lot of stuff in this episode that like one thing doesn't necessarily lead to the next perfectly well, but it, but I think it, it, it covers a couple bases that it needs to. Uh, but yeah, the, the Jim and Matt scene is a little odd fitting in here in this episode. Yeah, I think it, uh, this is definitely a season where I think three and four don't work as well as some of the others. But I think once we get into, I think once episodes six, seven, and eight are probably some of the best best material the show's ever had. Four is really weird. I like so I love the start. It's Jean finally embracing her homosexuality. She meets this librarian Sam. They date, and she tells her asexual husband Norm that. Sam's going to move in with them, and they're going to be a thruple. He's fine with this. Jim has them all come down to Florida, and Gene has got this reunion with his mom. But we learn that their mom and Jim have been in a uh, – had had a partnership this whole time, and she works for, like, a mob in Kansas City. And it leads to him telling Gene about this, and that gets her mad at him. And this is a weird one. The, the whole mom thing in the mob really did not work for me. No, it didn't. Kansas City really is kind of a haven for the mob, so at least they got that part right. It's it's a very strange episode. It's probably one of my least favorites of the entire run, and it's it's a very strange thing. I don't I don't want to disrespect the actor who plays uh, Jim Brockmeyer's mom, but it's like they wanted Jessica Walter but couldn't get Jessica Walter. That's what I would agree with that. Me. Yes. Um, and I don't even think that she's the problem. I think it's just a character problem. It's like you're sure. introducing the mom. You're having her go through the plot line. Like gambling in baseball is, of course, is something that's very loaded for a lot of reasons. The Black Sox scandal, Pete Rose, all that jazz. So for her to just be able to like start this and end it in one episode, it's it's just really strange. It. Yeah, this is an episode that really does not work for me. Um, and the only reason that they did this is basically to kind of have Jim and Gene not getting along to build up the drama for what happens later. I just think they could have done it in in any number of other ways where they did not have to introduce uh, Jim's mom as being a terrible person because, look, Jim's father was already a terrible person. We didn't need both parents being terrible. Yeah, it just felt like a, a filler episode, which is strange to say for an eight-episode season. You feel like you want to maximize your time. Uh, but what, really what it gets down to is you get um, J- Jim calling Charles to fly down because he needs someone to talk to. And Jim wonders what's the purpose of being nice. And Charles says, well, being nice attracts other nice people who will stick around. And if he stays nice, his sister will come back just like Charles did into his life. And I like that. like that Charles is back for a little bit. Really, I really think you needed him in here somewhere. And I think the way they got him there worked out fine. Um and I like that he is uh, – he did not write off Jim entirely when he took his new job. Uh, 
which maybe and, and maybe he could have. I mean, they kind of ended on a, a, a positive note to end season two, but they kind of have their own disparate lives right now. Well, I think the one thing that is is good is that there was a year separating when they kind of had their, uh, for lack of a better term, breakup in New Orleans, and then he spends a year getting sober. And I think part of it is time heals all wounds. And you know, Charles has gone on to be very successful. Part of that success directly connects back to Jim. I'm sure that they are having cordial text message conversations and, and phone calls perhaps. So I think that it's one of those things where a lot of the, a lot of the healing has perhaps come off screen. I, and I think that's totally fine. I'm okay with that. Again, especially yeah. with the time issue. Yeah, I would. I I want a TV show. I want a TV show to feel like I am catch, capturing a moment in their lives, not their entire lives. For sure. And as you had mentioned at kind of the beginning of this uh, episode, that Charles realized he's a millionaire. This happened a couple months ago back in New Orleans. He's. He, I guess he wants someone to celebrate with. Uh, so he flies in the girl who gave him that awkward hand job in season one, Denise, and they fuck in the car at the airport, and uh, she's in Florida with. Charles visiting them and uh, she's insane. What do we think about Denise? I think they did Denise really dirty here. I, if this is another one, it's just like Shelly Brotmeyer's mom and Denise. I'm like, what are we doing? Like having Denise just be a crazy woman is something that was actually really shocking to me because the show never does this. Like they always find a way to subvert things to like have Denise like, in some way be right over Charles and Brotmeyer. But here she's just straight up crazy. I did not like, I did not like her role in this episode at all. Yeah. And her and Charles stay together too, which strange choice, I guess, but is what it is. I mean, and it's funny because like the, so Maggie becomes a prominent character in this episode and they, she's kind of a standard for jewels. Like that's the impression that I get, like just looks wise, personality wise, but like she's definitely not Jules because she's not as much of a drunk. So they, they differentiate. They give her, I think, a really good character. So I really like what they do with Maggie. But then you have Denise literally stabbing Brockmire with a knife. And <laughs> yeah. it's just like – and it, it, like, it should have been funny. It wasn't. I think the conversation after was kind of funny because he just got stabbed and he's talking to her. And I'm like that's kind of just like an interesting dynamic. But – yeah. Yeah. Very, very bizarre for this show to have this happen. Yeah. I mean, this show is bizarre, but like for this to happen is specifically bizarre because they almost never treat their female characters like this to just have them straight up be crazy. Yeah. It was a, a, maybe a bit of lazy writing here just to have someone back in Charles's life. Could have just made someone new. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But well, so Jim wants or Matt wants Jim to come visit him in the hospital in the oncology ward and. <laughs> So they obviously did not have the best interaction when they left, and I love that uh, Jim and Charles have this conversation about uh, – uh, Charles says, you know, I once saw a sober 14-year-old beat you up, and she beat the shit out of you, and Jim says she wasn't that sober. Uh, love it. Uh, that was good. So, so at the stadium, Matt's oncology nurse, Maggie, who we just talked about, visits the stadium, and she's impressed with uh, – Jim's needle handling abilities because she witnesses him uh, injecting Gabby with fertility drugs. Her and her uh, wife are trying to have a kid. And Maggie is played by Christine Woods, which I know from the show Hello, Ladies. Did you ever watch that show? I did not. It's very funny. She definitely plays a very different type of like a aspiring actress in that in that show. And it's a different uh, 
character, but she's good. And I was really happy to see her again in the show. So anyways, her and her and Jim hit it off, but she more or less bribes Jim into coming to visit Matt if he wants to ask her out, which I thought was clever and a, a nice thing for her to do. It's like I'm giving you a tentative yes, but she's been with Matt. She knows the shape he's in. We learned that he has basically had no visitor. So it was a nice thing, I think, for her to do to to, to play this card for Jim. To me, it worked. Yeah, I think that the, that part of the episode definitely does work. And I think uh, having K.K. Simmons and Hank Azaria in the hospital together, I think that those two have a really nice chemistry together. So I think those scenes uh, for this episode and um, the rest of the season, I think they really work. They really work well. Yeah, because you get you get Matt apologizing to Jim uh, and he says, you know, I, he realizes he made everyone around him suffer before he got sick and now he's all alone. And it's sort of him trying to impart this message on Jim, even though Jim doesn't necessarily take it and he leaves Matt because he's still trepidatious. But then when he has to go back to the hospital after being uh, stabbed, we see him walking with Matt around the hallway. And this is something that uh, I did a lot when I was in the oncology unit. I'd take walks every so often because you're just in the hospital bed all day. And if you're healthy enough to walk around, you get the circulation, get a different view. But also you have Jim who has to walk it off, I'm sure, after getting stabbed in the leg to – to make sure that's all working. Uh, but it's also nice because this is when Jim opens up to Matt about the Charles situation. And as a dad, Matt's advice is to, you know, hey, give Charles your opinion just one time and only if he asks for it. And that's what happens when Charles goes to uh, when he leaves and he's moving to New York to live with the niece. And uh, <laughs> I love that. He gets the opportunity to say what he wants to in 30 seconds. And he just ends up being like, and for God's sakes, prenup, prenup, prenup. Uh, but he does tell Charles that he loves him. And uh, they have a hug and before Charles tells them they're going to 69 on the Staten Ferry. Uh, and that's how the episode ends. Uh, so nice bit of advice that you see from Matt to Jim and it's working and it's uh, help, helpful in his real life, especially with his relationship with Charles, who he views as a son, which makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's worth pointing out that we do not get any of Charles or Jules the rest of the season, that the rest of the season is focused on Brockmire and the newer characters. Mm-hmm. And we, well, I was going to say that, you know, Charles is like his son, but he has his own son with Clem as his household that we see, which is, which is How great. dare you forget about Clemenza? I didn't, Clemenza. For, I didn't forget about Clemenza. I forgot the dynamic was he was very much a son to Jim at times and not just a pet. And especially because Clemenza is about to have his, his, his big moment is in episode six. That's right. Well, and it starts with Gabby getting pregnant, which is very positive, except for when she goes home and discovers that her wife is cheating on her. So she goes to stay with Jim. He's not doing the best job providing Gabby with the comfort she needs. And during exercise, she witnesses a bird purposely crash into a fountain. And you get this thing where, like, Gabby's trying to mentally go work out and stuff and, and get things on the uh, back on the right track. And then that seeing a literal bird commit suicide uh, – has her tailspin uh, into a deep depression spiral. Uh, this uh, this is a tremendous showcase for Tawny Newsom. I think she's gotten some things to do in the first five episodes, but this is basically uh, a lot of this episode is from her point of view. And uh, what a great showcase for her and this character as we really get to kind of explore what it means to to be pregnant and to kind of just get this dynamic of what happened to her is very similar to what happened to her broadcast partner in a way. And 
like what does this all mean and like what kind of a personality uh, does she have and how much of that played a role into what happened and why she's being cheated on uh, because they really explore the dynamic between the two characters and how one of the reasons that these two women uh, may have been together for so long is because they were the only two gay people uh, that were – in the dorm at the University of Arizona State, I think it's the school. So yes. it's a it's a really interesting dynamic between Gabby and her wife, and I think it's very much appreciated uh, because they really you know explore the relationship, and they don't just make Gabby the the right person in this circumstance, but they they kind of complicate things by having Gabby be this uh, this type A uh, personality and. Gabby and Gabby has also kind of been the one who is always calling out Brockmeyer for his bullshit, and like she's always been the professional one. And in this episode, both on the air and off, she is uh, she is not doing well. And I think it's I think it's really it's a it's a great. This is probably my favorite episode of the entire season. It's one of the best of the series because just the way that they focus on Gabby and they actually focus on Brock Meyer trying to be a good person and not in like an ironic or cute way, but like just trying to help Gabby in every way he can. The next episode might be my favorite, but admittedly I have a very personal connection to Matt's cancer story a little bit, but this is an awesome episode. You get Gabby being able to be depressed as fuck, let loose and just be a jerk towards Jim and Maggie and what I, I liked what you said about her like her sticking together with her wife because you know they were the only two gay people in the dorm but I like that her athletic life comes up in two ways one she gets a insane amount of Panda Express and she talks about how as an athlete my life I've always had to watch what I eat and do this so now she's pregnant and can and in the broadcast booth so now she can finally let loose in that way but two, she talks about on the air about how so much of being an athlete is having a beat into your head is there's wins and losses. It's black and white, and there's no gray area in that. And she wanted to, for lack of a better word, win marriage and walk it off like you would an injury. And that just didn't work. That's not life. That's It's not the same thing. And Jim helps put it into perspective with her on the air and says, you know, from his perspective, Gabby is a winner. And she's genuinely touched and appreciative of the comment. And it, it, it it's a it's a like you said, it's a fun twist of Jim on the air having to make sure that she doesn't sabotage her career and help her realize that walking off the pain instead of accepting that her and Gail weren't going to make it is the right thing to do. And uh, the line about let your anger be a passenger, not the driver feels like something he learned in AA, too. But really like that dynamic at the end of the episode and especially them. Talking about this on the on the field in the evening, um, Jim assures her she's going to be fine and talking about some baby names and stuff. And I really like that this sort of ties into the advice he got from his sponsor was you need to start helping people without expecting anything in return. And so far, he's done that for for Charles and Gabby. Matt's going to be there. Um, and so I, I like that. They're not beating you over the head with, look at how I'm helping people right now. It's It just happens very naturally, and I really like that. Each of the last three episodes, I think, has just a spectacular scene that could have 
any either any one of them could be regarded as one of the best of the series. For me, episode six, it's the conversation that they have while broadcasting the game. And again, the best part is that Brotmeyer is still broadcasting the baseball game while they're having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And it is uh it's it's tremendous. But it's a spring training game, so no one no one no one cares and probably no one's listening either. Um so yeah, I really I really like this. Uh I think that their conversation that they have because he is uniquely qualified to talk about this again because he went through uh, a very similar circumstance. So the way that they're able to connect and the very emotional conversation that they're able to have on this 20-minute comedy uh, I think speaks speaks incredibly well. And episode seven, I think, has – it's very different, the scene that Matt and Brockmeyer have in the hospital. But I think that they're kind of getting to some emotional truths. And I think episode eight is kind of – kind of Brockmeyer kind of brings it all together uh, right at the end of the episode. But, I mean, that, that scene in episode six, uh, in, in, a, in an episode that had, I think had a lot of really good scenes, like – the scene with Gabby watching Dunkirk and Jim just not being able to handle Christopher <laughs> Nolan film. Like he just physically is rejecting it. <laughs> and Gabby's very specific Panda Express order. Um, just like those scenes are tremendous, but like just the way it all comes together with Gabby, like having this meltdown and her, him kind of bringing her off the ledge, so to speak. Yeah. Episode six is great. He also says that uh, getting Panda Express is the definition of settling, and I very much agree. Panda Express stinks. Like, Awful. I'm sorry. Unless you live in like the smallest of the small towns, I guarantee you, you have a better Chinese restaurant near you. Like, and I'm fortunate enough. Like, I have a I have a really good Chinese restaurant, like literally next door to my apartment. So that's where I go to Chinese for Chinese food. But my campus has a Panda Express, and every time I see a student with it, I'm just staring them down because it's like there is literally a Chinese restaurant by my apartment also near the university that's just as good if not better panda express sucks yes unless you're getting just a thing of orange chicken and literally nothing else go elsewhere absolutely i don't even think the orange chicken is that i mean i'm not a huge orange orange chicken guy so i'll give them credit and say for fast food it is very good but you're gonna get better at a at a mom and pop chinese place for sure we've got a lot of great ones in my area but i digress uh, yeah, so episode seven, disabled list, a lot of Matt and uh, Jim talking to each other because uh, we find out that Jim's having some problems in the bedroom. He's got the dick yips, as he calls it, which big laugh for me. I think that's a perfect way to put it in his parlance. But fortunately, Maggie is – it's awkward, but she's very patient with him. Matt's kind of talking him through it, um, gives him some advice that's okay. A little bit of not misogynistic necessarily, but a little uh, a little gross. And Jim ends up yelling very awkwardly at a Vietnam vet during a share at AA about him possibly not having a uh, him having the dick yips too. Let's put it this way. And Shirley says that he's at this point in his recovery where it's time for Jim to start taking responsibility for his solutions. And Jim has his own epiphany of, okay, maybe it's time to find this higher power to let things go if he ever is going to release his anxiety. And eventually uh, he discovers that baseball is his higher power, the the thing that he believes in that's bigger than himself. And this is a conversation he has with Matt because Maggie lets him know that Matt's cancer is spread to his organs. He doesn't have much time left. And 
as they're kind of talking about what is death, Jim tells Matt that he had the life of a baseball man, which is such a great life and uh, something that very few people get to do. And that's when Jim has this revelation. Um, <laughs> leads to a scene where he's kind of he's talking to himself in a ballpark about how the baseball gods deemed him worthy of redemption. And we see a scene where this hand job from Maggie in her car got quite messy. And we see that uh, Jim has put Matt's ashes from his urn into a line chalker and he's rolling it across the diamond of the baseball field as the episode ends. So touching stuff, but obviously very funny with uh, some of the Dick Yip stuff there as well. This is an episode that is able to accomplish so much in 20 to 22 minutes. I think previous episodes have just not been able to do this. So again, I think the show is constantly, it is constantly riding that fine line here. And I think they, they did it masterfully in this case because you are not only able uh, to have Brotmeyer have these dick yips and the scenes with Maggie, which I think are very powerful. And I love the fact that, you know, she is accepting of this. And I think that speaks to you. Like the fact that Brotmeyer is, he is drawing nicer people, people into his orbit uh, because he is being a nice person. So I yeah. think that's important to point out specifically about Maggie. Yeah, it works out great. And uh, I think the scene that he has with Matt, I think this is the scene that you referred to uh, this episode. You said it was your favorite. So um, certainly you should you should you could probably speak to this maybe a little bit better than I can. But the fact that they you don't get TV shows talking about death like this in any other form. And the fact that this is, again, supposed to be a comedy like Brotmeyer just flat out says what he believes and Brotmeyer does not believe in the idea of a heaven or hell that you just die and you're, that's it. And I think that's something that it's a little depressing to think about, but I think just, I think Jim has this realization of, of the importance of living life and of being a, a person who loves baseball. And again, put a pin in this because it's something that is, is an important part of season four, that baseball is so important to who Jim Brotmeyer is as a person, that this is something that we're going to continue talking about in season four as well. And the idea of him believing that baseball is bigger than him, I think for a lot of people who are involved in sports, I think this is true. I think this could just as easily have been a football announcer or football coach or football player that the sport is something bigger than, than who you are as a person. And maybe even people in wrestling would tell you the same thing. Well, and I, I think Jim puts it so succinctly at the end of episode eight, which we'll get to, but we have to talk about the fact that of course, Art Newley is now a right wing TV host now who's urging his followers to cause a stir at opening day games. Now that he is no longer a broadcaster, this this is too real, man. This this whole thing is still very fresh and, gosh, maybe even more relevant in 2021. Yeah, uh, so I just want to finish up. What a great payoff, though. Matt talks about not wanting to rot, so they cremate him, and he literally becomes a part of the baseball field. Yeah. I mean, that's you are circling the square with that payoff, so I really love that. And then Art Newley being a right-wing TV host. I mean, like, when we're recording this, like – so I, you, you probably don't know who Clay Travis is, and that's good, but Clay Travis is a sports personality, um, but he basically has transitioned to becoming uh, kind of a right-wing sports person, and um, 
Will Kane is somebody else who you probably don't know. Again, a good thing. He was on ESPN for a while. He was kind of the he was kind of a lightly conservative voice. But of course, he transitions to Fox News and just goes full Fox News. So this is a real thing. This is absolutely something that that actual people in sports are doing because of course they are because um you know they're concerned about a lot of things in sports um the kneeling all that jazz like art newley's the type of person that would yell at colin kaepernick for for kneeling that's just something he would do i was wondering if there was maybe some sports personalities who once their broadcasting career came in something would lean into that that field so Terrible to know that it's somewhat true in a couple cases. Yeah, and in this case, it was after after this episode had aired, so it's 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 sadly very plausible that this could happen. Are, are we blaming Brock Meyer for this? We are not blaming Brock Meyer for this. Okay, now. just checking. I, I, we actually it, this Art Newley thing is actually a, kind of a creative way to get us some insight into Shirley's life because it's her older son who's watching Art Newley on his iPad and just ingesting it all as truth. Uh, her younger son eats her donuts that she's bringing to, to AA and pukes into her purse. And she has a daughter in a booster seat to boot, and she is losing her mind with these kids in her car. She's also waiting to try to, to park at a building, and people aren't moving. So she she's losing it. Uh, but it's her first insight into what, what Shirley's life looks like outside of these AA meetings. I think it's sad that it took until the finale to really get an idea of who Shirley is as a person outside of being Jim Brockmeyer's sponsor. I think like they're trying to encapsulate her life in one scene. And I think they do a pretty, pretty good job of that. But again, this is something that I wish we could have seen earlier. And also, can I just say, uh, Shirley's older son probably stormed the Capitol. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I guess he would have had to make it to Florida DC somehow, but yes. Uh, he's also probably an incel and probably is on HN. Reddit boards and things probably like that. taking uh, the inver medicine or whatever it's called. Oh yeah. How, how, how could we forget? Hopefully that's not a thing by the time you're listening to this anymore, but I have my doubts. I mean, I've learned more about this horse medicine that I would have ever, ever cared to know. Like there is a human version of it, but it does not help with COVID. <laughs> no, certainly not, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. What is important though, is it's opening day for the season. So it's obviously a huge day for both Gabby and Jim. And we see Jean show up and Gabby wanted it to be a day later, but Jean had to come down for some Disney thing. I do kind of like the side thing that she's Disney obsessed, but she, the reason she's come to Florida is because both her and Gabby wanted to break the news to Jim in person that Jules is engaged to George Brett. And they found – and I love they also found out on social media, and they both followed her to keep tabs, but they both ended up really liking her, and they call her the Busy Phillips of baseball. And Jean is still mad at Jim, but her sobriety is still important to her, so she asked Jim to just not go on a bender because of this. So yeah, we kind of brushed over it, but their their relationship was sour when she realized that Jim had a relationship with her mom. She never got to have – but obviously she killed – She I, I do like that she came back here because, again, his sobriety is kind of bigger than their personal relationship, and I think it – it, to me, it feels real that a sibling, even if your relationship is cold, would put down the rivalry to come and help him out with his sobriety. Yeah, I really like that. I think it's a great payoff to the Gene Jim relationship because I think it's important to, to kind of maintain that. So that's a huge positive. So one of the things that you talked about is you questioned whether Jim was going to stay sober for the final two seasons. When did you think the sobriety was going to break, if at all, in this season? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, this episode definitely was going to would have tested it, but I don't know there's any other point in the season where I thought for sure maybe episode two with the George Brett thing, like after he maybe sees George in person or at the Costas dinner. You know, there's a lot of moments for it to happen there. And maybe the fact that it didn't should have let me know, like, okay, there's really nothing else that can happen to make it to, to make it go wrong enough for him to break his sobriety if these things didn't, but they really made this episode make it seem like Jim was going to snap. Yeah, and I mean, I think that for the season three finale, I think it it only makes sense that that you would do this. And uh, yeah, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of awkwardness in the first half. That scene with Maggie was painful. I'm not gonna yeah. lie because he, he he panic proposes to her, and I also like that she knows why he did it because she also thinks Jules is cool after following her on social media. But she wants something casual. Realizes we barely know each other. She's planning to fly the world uh, because. Uh, that's something she's wanted to do. And Matt gave her all of her frequent flyer miles, uh, when he died and they break up and they have to have a really awkward bike ride. So he learned Jules is engaged. He's lost his girlfriend. That's not good. And then things don't get much better at work. I love the fact that Jim talks about the fact that he got to hold Matt's hand and a bunch of leftover Dunkaroos. <laughs> so much Dunkaroos. Which are back now, just a few years later. Thanks, Brockmire. I would, I would like to think that J.K. Simmons willed it into existence. Yeah, uh, I'll just say this as someone who just spontaneously bought one and had one the other day. Best left as a childhood memory. Leave the memories alone is what you're saying. Yes. Don't want to change. Um. <laughs> It's like I said, there's problems at work, too. There's newly protesters as he's coming in the studio. Their biggest sponsor pulled their sponsorship because their newly fans are also big supporters of vaping. Uh, They also want Gabby to help Jim less because they they have, quote, newly heat. They want to go away as they his fans think it's emasculating that a woman is helping a man. And as Jim is uh, praying to the baseball gods as everything's falling apart, they see that a giant N written in shit is on the back of his jacket. So all of these things are are working against Jim right now. And then they get a bourbon sponsorship. And I told you that, you know, marketing works because Jim reading this bourbon ad as someone who doesn't really like liquor made bourbon sound like the most refreshing, tasty drink on the planet Earth. And uh, well, obviously, it sounds like it to Jim, too. And wouldn't you know it? This is also when George Brett texts him ask him to be an usher at his wedding. And I love that Jim isn't mad about this. He's more mad. He wasn't asked to officiate his jacket gets lost. And Jim has to go take a walk because he's angry that no matter what he does, he's still constantly being tested. The way this all comes at him fast and furious in this way is a really, really well done to make it seem like Jim is truly going to crack. Yeah. I mean, they're certainly headed in that direction at this point and it's just one thing after another. It's like, uh, again, I, I can't help but think of the Simpsons because of the Hank Azaria connection, but this is like when all those bad things happen to Skinner in a row, and it's like, no, no, <laughs> no! I just I couldn't help but think of that uh, while we watching uh, this episode. Uh, security in Tampa is apparently not very good uh, because Brotmeyer is walking up and protesters are literally just able to walk up and yell at him. I mean, I know that's kind of a random thing to talk about but it definitely it definitely struck me or maybe barney in the bar when um he has he's the sober ride and that's when death man comes to visit <laughs> not tonight not tonight and well a bar's where jim ends up and he orders a drink and he's about to throw his sobriety away 
When he calls his sponsor and oops, his sponsor is also at the bar. Shirley is broken. She's had a drink. Uh, whatever happened to her day finally broke her. And Jim finds this profoundness in them ending up at the same place. But Shirley just thinks it's a coincidence because her son's at the stadium across the street, part of the protest. But then we get an amazing story that Jim tells about our good friend Clem, how he survived all these years and how against all odds, Clem kept trying to get onto the couch. Eventually he did. We get an actual great like insight into seeing Clem trying to climb the couch and how excited Jim was when he gets home to find Clem on the couch. And he says that it comes down to him telling Shirley that there are no pointless – there's no such thing as pointless struggling as those struggles make them who they are. And he brings Shirley to the ball game. And I love this kind of turnabout where Jim is helping his sponsor out in the time where she needs it most. And he was able to be the one to remain sober and calm and use his own personal story of Clem to help her out in that time of need. Yeah, the person that told him that he needed to help people without expecting anything in return, I mean, that's this is the actual payoff to that because he's helping someone who he is not expecting anything in return. Like, they just happen to be in the same place. Did you talk about the best Clemenza moment in the entire season? I don't think we did that on the air. What was the best Clemenza moment? With uh, with he and Gabby sitting on the couch. <laughs> right. So after – well, there's two great Clemenza moments we need to talk about. The first one is – and they both are in the same episode. When Gabby sees the bird commit suicide, the next scene jumps to her like wrapped up in a towel on the couch and sitting right next to her on the couch is Clemenza. So that's great. And then later in the episode where she kind of comes to her senses and realizes that she's going to take control again and not be this depressed husk of a person on the couch – uh, part of that is because Jim gets mad at her because she left the back door open, and he's like, that's how Clemenza can escape, blah, blah. And then he walks back in with Clemenza, and he's like, he moved four feet outside. Also, uh, we have a fence. I may have overreacted. What a king. Yeah, I mean, Clemenza is the most important character in this series, I think. I, I can't see any arguments any other way. No arguments uh, for me, that's for sure. Uh, but I think we get to genuinely one of the best, I think – this might be like if this had been the end of the series, I think this could have worked with Brotmeyer's speech and just how it all pays off. Totally. Uh, you actually get Jean coming back, realizing weirdly it's a small word made her realize she needed to be there for Jim in his time of need versus uh, Disney, which is good because she's able to help Shirley try and sober up. But Jim has a renowned confidence. He's ready to call a game with Gabby. They're given a statement to read on behalf of the MLB to the newly supporters, and he says they'll read it, and he's going to throw in a few of his own words, too. And this is a tremendous moment. So they read the weak tea statement, then they go off on their own. Gabby says newly and his fans don't want her in the game or even America, but she is going to race her daughter as a baseball fan because it's her game. And Jim says he believes you can create your own meaning in the world. And he says for him, fairness, patience, community, and being part of a team are all part of baseball. And those are the, also the things he fights for as a human being. And the endurance of baseball is a symbol that they can make it out of dark times just like the game did. And it's a hell of a speech. It's a hell of a moment. Resonates with the fans. Resonates with the people in the room. Amazing way to more or less end the season. Yeah, I mean, it's not the official end of the season, but it's, uh, it is a great – 
um, thesis statement for what the show has been up to this point. Because it's worth pointing out that in season three, they have definitely brought up a couple of times this idea of the world is getting worse. That, you know, Brotmeyer has talked about global warming a couple times. He's mentioned, like, that there's a 15% chance, like, the world's going to just go to complete shit. So these are definitely things that he has talked about, not in a, in a, in a very subtle way, I think, but it's definitely something that has come up a couple of times. Um, in various conversations with different characters that the world is getting worse in so many ways. But I think the lesson that Brotmeyer is, is slowly realizing is that just because the world is getting worse, that doesn't mean you also have to get worse. Like that you can carve out your own part of your world and strive to become a better person. And I think that is an incredibly valuable lesson, which I really wasn't expecting from this show, especially after season one. It's becoming more and more of a show that I think is relevant in the way that it talks about the issues of relationships and in the way that Brockmire behaves. I mean, Brockmire is an asshole, but he's trying to get better. Even as the world around him is getting worse, he is trying to get better and he's trying to to find something for himself and kind of realizing that yes baseball and baseball in so many ways is a representation of the best and the worst parts of America but in those best parts baseball can be a, a beautiful thing and i think that's kind of what he realizes in the end that despite all the challenges despite the fact that things are going to shit that does not give you an excuse to be an asshole ultimately amen to all that awesome way to end the the season with that speech but then we really end with them starting the broadcast of the very first game where gabby asked jim to be the godfather of her child and i love that he agrees to this when they both assure each other like oh i don't i don't want to take custody if you die and gabby's like oh my god no i would never give you custody and we see that jim's counting of the game is just fine as the game begins so no yips no issues. He's he's doing well, Jim Brockmeyer is, and I think that's a nice note to end season three on. I mean, the idea of Brockmeyer becoming a father or having to take on this responsibility, it's, uh, it's not ideal, I would say. In, in no situations. I mean, look, he's still working on himself. Like, even if all the things, everything in his world was fine, it probably wouldn't be the best idea, but I think that's just probably the truth for for all alcoholics or or drug addicts or whatever is it's a constant battle with your sobriety every day every day is a different challenge every day is just getting through it and yeah he has a lot to work on in his own life before he can take care of someone else's life and that's okay that it's it's fine for where brockmeyer is in his life and things for once seem to be working out for him and where he is at this time of his life no he's not in a relationship with anybody (sighs) But his professional relationship is going well, and he's able to commit to sobriety even in the darkest of times. And he's able to convince himself and others that things are going to be okay, and that's and that's fantastic. That's a wrap on Season 3. What are your overall thoughts? Uh, I think Season 3 definitely has some clunkiness to it. I think that if I were to just go like episode by episode, probably a couple of my least favorite episodes of the series exist in this season. I'm thinking especially of episodes four and five that I just don't think that they work in total and there are aspects of it that 
that don't work. But here's the thing. The last three episodes are so good. And I think it makes a difference when the last three episodes are the best ones of the season. And it gives you a very positive feeling going into what will be the final season. I think it just, I think it changes your perception of the season. So for me, ultimately I like this season more than season two because episodes six, seven, and eight, I mean, just, there are so many great scenes in those episodes and I feel like there, there are even things that we may have missed, but just the way that this all comes together in such a brilliant way. I, I was, I was so impressed by what they were able to come up with. And again, if this, if this had been the end of the series, I would have been satisfied. I agree completely. I think this is probably my favorite season yet. It has one of the weakest episodes we've watched so far, but really some of the highest highs. And I think it's not as funny as season one. I think season two does a great job capitalizing on season one as well. But I think the story arc for this is really strong from start to finish, you know, minus a cute take out a couple clunky scenes and it works really well. And I think just once you get to the story of Jim helping other people in his life selflessly, it works so great to see that happen in a way that feels so natural, isn't beaten over your head, and it makes you root for Brock Meyer as we head into season four. I'm, I'm, and I'm hopeful that we'll that we don't get a major character switch up into season four. I hope we we get to see more of Gabby. I hope we get to see more of Gus. Maybe some more of Gene too, and who knows? Maybe his uh, his sponsor uh, sticks around too. And for the love of God, please don't let this be the end of Clemenza. I know what happens in season four, and let me tell you, I don't think I don't think your body is ready uh, for what season four is. Now, going into season four, I'm not going to tell you anything that's going on in season four because I, of course, don't want to spoil anything. But it is really important for you to understand when you are watching season four, the day the season premiere of season four was on March 18th of 2020. So literally after the pandemic had basically shut everything down for the first time in March of 2020 is when season four starts. That's really important for you to know. And at that time was season four, like done, like fully filmed shot. Season four was done. It was filmed. It had been written months before. It's really important that you keep that in mind when you watch season four. Okay. I will definitely keep that in mind. And I hope you're not going to ask me what my predictions are because I don't have any. I don't have a clue where we're going with season and four. And I, I don't I don't even if I asked you and you told me, you probably wouldn't get it right. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So I appreciate you sparing me that. Yeah. But in the so we'll be back in December to wrap up Brock Meyer uh with talking about the fourth and final season. But in the meantime, you can go check out mine and Jerome's other podcast. We talked about all of Veronica Mars on Mars Investigated. We talked about all of Halt and Catch Fire on There's Always Another Podcast. We've talked about all the Breaking Bad and all of Better Call Saul except for the final season, which is yet to air, over on Real Bad and also for Jerome and Kevin Present. We've talked about Barry season one and two. We talked about our top favorite episodes of The Simpsons. And if you, for whatever reason, listen to this before checking out our discussions of season one and two of the show – Go listen to those. I've also done a podcast about Lost with my friend Ben, talked about that entire series as well as a couple other uh, things from that show like their video game and the alternate reality game and whatnot. And then myself, Brad, and Justin talked about the entire Adventure Time television series as well as all of the HBO Max Distant Lands episodes. And uh, I guess we'll probably be talking about the Fiona and Cake episode coming out soon, but that's 
all on entertherealworld.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, I guess, if you want it, K413. Jerome, drop your socials, drop your other podcasts. Let me hear it. At Jerome C1985 is the place to find me on Twitter. And uh, make sure you go do that. Also, I do a podcast with Brian DeBrain. We talk about superhero movies, or we did talk about superhero movies over on Superhero Pantheon. You can go back into the archives and listen to all the movies we put into the Pantheon and into the pile of shame. But we are currently on Pantheon Plus, which means we are not just talking about superhero movies, but we are also talking about other films. In September, we did a month dedicated to Chadwick Boseman. October was John Carpenter Month. And Kevin, I am very happy to say November and December, we are watching all of the theatrically released Muppet movies and ranking them. This is the most important thing we've ever done, Kevin. That is pretty significant. I'm I'm very interested to hear what the outcome is at the end of the day. And uh, we are so we we have we will be doing some shifting of timelines and whatnot so that we could do the Christmas episode the week of Christmas. I think that makes sense. That's what the people want. It's what the people demand. Uh, Michael Caine is the best Scrooge. I think so. Hmm. I really like Bill Murray. I mean, he's. Te- I mean, I guess he is kind of Scrooge, but he's not technically Scrooge. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So yeah, pretty I'll great though. Yeah, my ironically, incredible. ironically, the uh, the the ending of Scrooge not all that dissimilar from Brock Meyer's speech at the end of season three. That is a good point. If you want to, if you want to put those two together, it, sync up Brock Meyer's speech to uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> no, I meant uh, Brock Meyer's season three and the end of Scrooge to Bill Murray's speech. Oh. You should still sync it up with the Muppets Christmas Carol. What if everybody in Brockmire except Brockmire was a Muppet? Uh, it would work out great for Clemenza. Uh, yeah, it would. I just that would, I, that would be amazing. Brockmire just interacting with puppets. <laughs> now I need this in my life. <laughs> Did you spoil season four for me? Is it an all puppet season or is there a what puppet if, episode? What if it was? <laughs> I man, I'm gonna go start season four right now. but yeah but uh thank you everybody for listening and we will see you again december when we talk at the series finale of brockmire look kevin i know that brockmire is an all-time drunk but did he ever puke outside of the ecw arena